Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Now, if you've uh, ever had small children, you might notice that if you look in a book about dinosaurs, you'll see lots of colourful animals staring back at you. But if you look at two books of dinosaurs, you'll notice that something isn't quite right. That, in fact, many dinosaurs come in all different types of colours. And the reason for that is, if you're drawing dinosaurs, you can pretty much use whatever colouring you like, because pigment, which is what gives animals colour, is not very well preserved in the fossil record. So you can have blue Parasaurolophilus in your book if you like, or you can have green ones with stripes. Um, This is a problem because we would love to know a lot more about colouring, how animals were coloured in the past, and how that's preserved in the fossil record. Well, Dr. Tiffany Slater, she's a paleobiologist at UCC, is interested in the preservation of ancient biomolecules like the things that give us colour. She joins me now. Um, uh, is that is that fair, Tiffany, that, that at the moment we can pretty much just pick our own colours for dinosaurs because most of the, the, the understanding of, of that colouring is, is lost in time? Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's correct. We we lose a lot of information during the fossilization process. Uh, so within reason, we can color our dinosaurs, whatever we like. <laughs> Do we have any idea what color any animal was, you know, more than a million years ago? Or are we often just taking our cues from what we see on the planet Earth today? Well, so we didn't really have a good idea about original fossil color until about 2008 when we first discovered evidence of pigments in the fossil record. So that was an exciting time because we never before thought that we'd ever be able to understand what these animals actually looked like. So we are gaining a better picture of what colors these ancient organisms were like uh, more and more every year. So what is it exactly that gives an animal its colour? And and maybe you might take me through the, the cellular makeup as well. Yeah, so there is a lot of pigments on the planet, but the pigments that we most often see in mammals, which is a lot of what we see in our day-to-day lives. We're looking at other humans, we're looking at our dogs and our cats at home. So the pigments that are most present in mammals and and other vertebrates like us are the pigments called melanin and there's two forms of melanin so we have eumelanin that gives us this black brown coloration and we also have pheomelanin which which gives us a more ginger like appearance so pheomelanin is what you're going to expect to see a lot of in somebody's ginger hair for example Right. This uh, you melanin, when you say uh, dark and, and, and brown, are you talking about um, skin color? Are you talking about freckles? Are you talking about hair? I am. Absolutely. All of the above. Oh. So you can find you melanin in your freckles and in brown hair, black hair, um, in it, you know, it makes up the the spectrum of, of skin color. So darker skin would have more you melanin content in it. I'm sure there's a large portion of our audience who are wondering, what about me? What about blondies and uh, and blue-eyed people? Do they not have either of these or do they have smaller amounts of these? It's likely that you would just have smaller amounts of these. So these pigments are not just there to provide coloration. So you would have uh, at least small amounts of eumelanin in your eyes, for example. And this is because 
it protects our skin and our eyes and our cells from the damage that the sun does. So the sun gives off these really powerful, really powerful radiation, and this can damage our DNA. So eumelanin is really amazing in that it helps prevent the oxidizing damage that the sun can can do to our bodies. Right. And so is pheomelanin less good at doing that or? Um, Absolutely. Or do- right. Yeah. So this is the conundrum. So we know that eumelanin is really powerful in its ability to protect our cells from damage from the sun. But pheomelanin is less good at doing this. And in fact, pheomelanin actually is toxic to us. So oh. when the sun irradiates pheomelanin, it actually generates what we call reactive oxygen species. And reactive oxygen species, they damage our cells. So it's a little bit of a mystery as to why pheomelanin evolved in the first place. What good is it doing us? Okay, and so um, when we talk about pigment and, and finding them in the fossil record, what are what are we looking at? Is it a is it a molecule? Is it um, is it cells? What what are we um, what are we talking about when we talk about pigment? So these pigments in particular, melanin pigments, they're stored in little packages called organelles. And because these organelles are containing the melanin pigments, we call them melanosomes. And now this is, it gives us something physical that we can see. So if I was to take your hair, for example, and pop it under a really high powered microscope, I would be able to see these melanosomes. And that gives us a a visual cue as to their presence. Right. So they they live within the, the hair cell. They do. Yeah. Well, um, your your hair doesn't have cells, oh. but um, because it's technically it's, it's technically a dead tissue, really. So it, your hair doesn't contain cells like your skin does necessarily. But these organelles called melanosomes, they're still there. So your body produces them when your hair is growing and it kind of inserts them into your hair before right. your hair then becomes hair. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So um, talk to me about the fossil record then. How far back are we finding evidence of eumelanin and pheomelanin? Well, so this is the thing. We are finding physical evidence of these pigments in the form of melanosomes pretty far back in time. So they seem to be really robust and survive fossilization for hundreds of millions of years. Wow. Yes, it's really impressive. And... What we're looking for now, though, is evidence of their molecules. So the molecular preservation of these pigments is less well known. So but the molecules are what's going to give us the most information about these pigments. So that's why we're so eager to find molecular evidence of these pigments in the fossil record, because that's going to give us the most information about their evolution and their distribution in the animal kingdom. So the oldest molecular evidence for pheomelanin now derives from our study showing the presence of pheomelanin in 10 million year old fossil frogs. Okay, so tell me about these frogs and and what you found. Well, all vertebrate tissues contain 
both pheomelanin and eumelanin. So I have yet to study anything that doesn't contain both. Now that's not to say that there aren't any tissues that that don't that don't contain both, but most of them it's about the ratio of these two pigments. So if your hair is more brown or black, you're likely to still have very small concentrations of pheomelanin in your hair. And alternatively, if your hair is more ginger in color, you're still likely to have this eumelanin pigment. So we know that if we just detect these molecules in the fossil record, it's not necessarily giving us an accurate picture of whether it was black, brown, or ginger. We need to start studying it on a more comprehensive level to get at the ratios. What were the ratios of these pigments in the fossil soft tissues to be able to accurately know what color the animal was? Right. Um, it, when it comes to these two melanins and different levels of both, that surely doesn't make up all the colors of the frog rainbow right i mean even if you knew the ratios would you still be able to say well this frog was green or that frog was black no you're spot on so we still have a lot to learn in terms of original fossil color precisely because these other pigments that exist in these tissues are not well preserved and sometimes they don't preserve at all but we're doing a lot more work around this to try to find evidence of these other pigments so things like carotenoids for example you might have heard of uh, carotenoids there's there's red carotenoids there's green carotenoids and a lot of these uh, pigments would also be present in tissues to help generate different sorts of colors. So a lot of times, even if a tissue is green, uh, it will still contain eumelanin and pheomelanin, but it will appear green to us. So you're absolutely right. It's It doesn't necessarily mean that the frog was ginger in color. Um, you uh, do something interesting. You look at fossil records to try and understand um, pigment, but you also try and recreate pigment to be able to compare them uh, to the fossils. Can you tell me about your chicken feather experiments, please? Yes, yeah. So it's really important when we're studying fossils that we're not just looking at our fossil data and starting to get a bit starry-eyed and seeing what we want to see. So it's it's very important that we ground truth our interpretations of fossils with actual experimental data that we do in the lab. So we might often think about paleontologists as going on the field and digging up bones, but a lot of paleontologists are increasingly spending more and more time in the lab to help understand how fossilization occurs and what is the impact of fossilization on these bones and dinosaurs and, and, and soft tissues that we're seeing in the fossil record. So I perform experiments in the lab with uh, using a lot of different variables that, that might occur during fossilization. So one of these is that when fossils are buried under sediment, as they get buried deeper into the Earth's crust, they're experiencing higher and higher temperatures. And this, of course, will alter the fossil. So we need to understand how does temperature influence this alteration? So I perform experiments in the lab using chicken feathers and I'm putting them into ovens, basically. I'm cooking the chicken feathers and I'm looking at the feathers and the pigments inside of them to see how the pigments are degrading with these temperatures that 
they'd experience during fossilization. Right. And if um, black feathers degrade in a different way to um, yellow feathers, then there might be some sort of signal there, some sort of pattern that you might be able to recognize that would help you to reverse engineer the, the pigment of, of a bird or a frog or something. Absolutely. That's exactly what we did for this study. So we were able to see that the patterns of the degradation between eumelanin and pheomelanin are different when they're in different colored feathers. So I was looking at black and ginger and white feathers and the the molecular signal after maturing them in the ovens, uh, they look completely different from one another. And I was able to use this data to then compare it to our fossil data in order to better interpret my fossil data so that I'm not just making things up. Um, is it possible that you might be able to find um, that these ratios could be a biomarker that might give you um, an insight into a better understanding of the, the color? Say, for example, if your ratio of pheomelanin to, um, to eumelanin is, you know, 10 to 1, and then you see that sort of ratio in in red animals, is it possible that... Um, you might fall, fall upon something like that? Or is it very difficult to determine the ratio from the sort of sample sizes you're getting? Well, so you're right in that our sample sizes are very limited, but you're you're absolutely right. We're looking to find these sort of ratios in our fossils uh, in order to determine what was their original color uh, more similar to. So we might not able to say 100% its exact color, as I said, because we might not have the carotenoids that were originally present. But you're absolutely right. We can take these ratios from our experiments and compare them to the fossil feathers, and it helps us gain a better understanding of what the original color would have been. So for example, with the fossil frog that that we were talking about, it does contain these pheomelanin molecules uh, or traces of these pheomelanin molecules, but it wasn't ginger in color. So the ratios that we're seeing in this fossil frog were that it had predominantly eumelanin and also a bit of pheomelanin. So these ratios, we are seeing them reflected in the fossil uh, as our experiments suggest. Right. Um, but you don't see many ginger frogs and you don't, I suppose you do see brown frogs. Is, is, would, it, does your information give you any idea as to what color that frog might have been? Yeah, so um, it would have had more eumelanin pigments, which give off black and brown, than pheomelanin pigments. So the the ginger color wouldn't have been the dominant color that we're seeing. Right. But what's remarkable is that these molecules are there at all. So that was a really exciting finding that they, we found that they were there. But absolutely, the the frog was would have been. Uh, it would have appeared more black and brown in color than ginger. Um, one last question. Are there any animals that preserve their pigment well in fossil record? I mean, obviously the skin of a, a salamander is different to the feather of a bird, which is different to the eyes of a fly, for example. Surely some of these structures hold their pigment quite well over time or or are they, or, or the color of any animal beyond a million or two years are they gone for forever? So you're absolutely right. There's a lot of things at play here. The The biology of an animal can determine whether these pigments are well preserved. And then the fossilization process can also help determine whether the pigments are preserved. So 
we still don't have a great understanding of which tissues might preserve the pigments better, but that's absolutely one of the questions that we're trying to answer. And we do have evidence of other pigments in, um, in different ways. So for example, we do have evidence of carotenoids in the fossil record, but it's not molecular evidence. Instead, it's where the structure that the carotenoids are in has been replaced by minerals. And then we're able to see the minerals taking on this shape of the carotenoids. So right. they can preserve in various ways, um, but really it's that molecular information that gives us much more detail. And that's what we're looking for. Right, so for the moment, all we can see is sort of the ghost of color. We're hoping to one day see the real thing. Really interesting. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Tiffany Slater, paleobiologist at UCC. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Now, we often think of light as this untouchable thing that we can't really interact with. But now scientists are using light to not just look inside the body, but also manipulate cells. Here to tell me a little bit about it is Professor Stefan Anderson Engels. Uh, he's head of biophotonics and deputy director of IPIC, based at the Tyndall National Institute. He's also a professor of physics at UCC. Welcome to the program, uh, Stefan. This sort of idea of using light in medicine, obviously, in terms of imaging, it, it's not particularly new. Um, how far back does it go? We have used light for maybe 100 years in, in, in medical applications, but more recently we have developed more spectroscopic techniques to do more diagnostics. And I consider maybe myself as the first generation of PhD student in that field. So, so that field is maybe 35 years old. This is biophotonics, is that right? Correct. So part of photonics, photonics is what we say a key enabling technology of the 21st century. So, so it's something like electronics was the last century because now we can make it very, very compact. And biophotonics is when we use the light, so, so photons, when we use that for medical applications. So this isn't imaging. This is the manipulation of, of cellular matter. Can you explain what we can do with light now that we weren't able to do maybe 30, 40 years ago? Light has always been there, obviously, but technology has evolved quite a bit. And I say, when I say photonics is a key enabling technology, that means that we can now make it much more energy efficient, how we use light to detect things. We generate photons with small semiconductor devices, and, and we detect it with small semiconductor devices. And we can integrate that all in with electronics to make it extremely compact. So think of the modern smartwatch, where you have a lot of light sensors on the smartwatch to measure heart rate and other things. And this is typically what we're trying to develop here. Compact devices that are small, that can measure biomarkers or molecules in the tissue that you previously haven't been able to measure. What exactly are um, these sensors doing? You talked about the, the Apple Watch, uh, or the, the, the smart watches that can measure um, BPM and so on. How do they do that? So what they do is that they send in light with a small LED or light source. And then that light is obviously very scattered because tissue is extremely scattered. You can't see through my hand, for instance, or we can't see through deep tissue. But light is scattering quite a bit and 
some of that is scattered back to a detector next to the LED, the light source. And what we try to measure is the attenuation of that light and how much is that attenuated. And we measure that at different colors, different wavelengths, because light is interacting with, with blood in this case. Uh, and we know that blood is changing color when it binds oxygen. So we see deep red uh, blood is not containing much oxygen, while it's light red, then it's containing oxygen. So, so that we see that, yes, light is actually interacting with the molecules, and we can measure how much oxygen is taken up by the tissue or the blood in this case. Right. So that that makes sense. I hadn't thought about the process of it before. But can we see more than just uh, uh, blood oxygen levels and, and blood flow if we use uh, more powerful or different types of light? Um, what, 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 what does the future hold? Yes. So, I mean, one future, as I would see it, is to have wearables. The evolution will be more and more that we will develop techniques to monitor the health of people and predict whether they will be ill and treat them before they get ill. So, so that requires a lot of sensors that we don't have today. And this, I see, is one of the futures of this, to develop these very compact devices that we can predict disease before it really evolves. How would that work exactly? So so that would be similar to the smartwatch. I mean, but now we measure not only the BPM, but we measure blood glucose, we measure lactate, we measure other molecules that are predictor biomarkers of, of any disease. Right. That sounds great, but it sounds like quite a passive thing. Is it possible to use light to to do something inside the body to to treat um, a disease in some way? Yes, obviously. I mean, light has been used as well a lot in, in treatment, like laser surgery, for instance, uh, especially. I mean, there is a lot of laser surgery when you cut, use the laser as a knife rather than a scalpel. Yeah. So, so this is one thing. But there is also a lot of methods where we try to measure deeper into tissue. We can take an example of, of an infant, preterm infant. So, so the most vulnerable of all of our patients. So really newborn and born early, so preterm baby. So about 50% of the preterm babies haven't developed lung sufficiently to have a normal breathing. The breath is obviously very important to oxygenize the tissue and the brain. And if we now could be able to measure how well the lung is functioning, not with x-rays as they do today, because x-rays, you can't monitor babies, you can measure once a day maybe, and it's also not harmless like light is. Light is a harmless way to, to, to measure. And if you could do that non-invasively, so you put a probe on the chest wall and you see how much of that light that goes into the lung comes back again, and then you can measure the amount of oxygen in the lung. That would be a fantastic tool to develop. Are there certain conditions at the moment that are uh, a a good candidate for light therapy or or diagnosis using light? So, I mean, that was one example. I mean, there would be many other examples. I mean, we are working with clinicians here in Cork and around the world on, on various applications. I can take another example would be oral cancer. Oral cancer is a fairly common disease still, and the prognosis is actually not extremely good because 
when you detect the cancer is usually at the fairly late stage. So the five-year survival rate is approximately 50%, I would say. Wow. We are trying to see, can we help screen patients for early cancer diagnostics, develop a tool that could potentially go into the dental office. So every time you go and check your teeth, you also measure whether you have an oral cancer or not, or a pre-stage of oral oral cancer. So that doesn't measure blood flow, presumably. What sort of biomarkers are you looking for that uh, cancer? And how do you how do you search in the tissue using light? Yeah, so, so then we are using a little bit more sophisticated optical tools or photonics tools. So we in this case, we can use yeah, either diffuse reflectance, as I said, we can also use other tools like fluorescence or Raman spectroscopy, so more sophisticated optical techniques that could measure other biomarkers in the tissue, other molecules that interact with the light. And in this, this case, we are looking for certain proteins that are expressed when, when you develop this type of oral cancer. And the, in the screening phase, we would really like to see those proteins that are released into the saliva. So if we can take a saliva sample and, and test that while the patient checks the teeth, for instance, that would be a fantastic way to... to test early stage oral cancer screening. Light doesn't pass through human tissue very well. Is there a way around that? Yes. Now, I mean, that's a very, very good question. And I mean, the interesting thing is that light, as I said, has molecular specificity. So you can do imaging or measure molecule concentration in, in tissue, but it doesn't really penetrate extremely deep, especially it's highly scattering. So if you would like to image deep in tissue, you can't really do that because of a highly scattering, so it becomes very diffuse. It's like looking for a frosted glass, but you can combine it with ultrasound. So ultrasound, we know, can go very deep in tissue. It doesn't scatter, and, and you can get good resolution images, but they don't really have very high specificity. They are acoustic density is what you measure, basically. If you can combine light and ultrasound, that would be really a future of how to do that. And we are working on a technique right now where we could send in light, we focus ultrasound into tissue, and when light is scattered into that small volume where you have an ultrasound focus, it will pick up a little bit of a frequency of the ultrasound. So we have a very high frequency of, of light. So light oscillates very, very high frequency while ultrasound has a much smaller frequency. So, so what you do is that you get a frequency shift of the light that interacts with that tissue while you have the ultrasound focus. Very exciting. Um, good luck with uh, the research. Professor Stefan Anderson Engels from uh, Tyndall National Institute and IPIC. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.